morning, church. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in um, chapter 27, verse 21 today. That's page 936 in the Bibles around the room. And what's happening right now is Paul is on a ship on his way to Rome, and he is caught in a storm, and it's been a long time, and um, all hope is lost. So let's see what God does. Um, Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night came, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathom. And a little further on, they took sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the anchors for the stern and prayed for they to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food for themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind. They made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the sea. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest anyone should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to run and rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire 
and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of the place where lands belonged to the chief of the man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray, church. Lord, through the storm, through the fire, the flood, the sickness, the shipwreck, the doubt, God, you are always working. Thank you. You are always with us, God, and we praise you. God, us, help us to be the people that when all hope is lost, we find hope in you. Help us to recognize that your work, no matter what is happening in our life, is never over, that the truth of your gospel will always advance. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand your message today. Bless Pastor Kyle as he moves through your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, Casey. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest, welcome. Uh, and if you're a member, I love being your pastor. You know, we've been working for a while about trying to be more celebra- uh, celebratory in our singing. And today, man, you guys were clapping through that last song we just sang the whole time. It wasn't always on beat, you know, but we were making it. For me, I'm like, I can either clap or sing. Both, it doesn't work. So it's, it's one or the other. I chose clapping for most of that song. So, uh, but we're doing it. So that's awesome. Proud of you guys. And uh, if you're a guest with us, welcome to this church. I know coming into a church can be very intimidating. What you need to know about Living Stones is this, is this is a place where you can come as you are to seek truth. And uh, you can ask questions, you can bring your doubts. Uh, You are welcome here. We are honored that you're here. It's our hope that you might find some of the answers to the questions that you're asking. And as Christians, we believe that the answers are found uh, in the scriptures, Um, that we have everything in the Bible uh, that we need to point us to a relationship with God and to live happy lives. And so today we're in Acts 27 and 28. So if you didn't have one open for the reading that we just did, make sure to grab a Bible, open up to Acts 27 and 28, uh, which is on page 936 in the Bibles we said around the room. Now, today is sad day, kind of, because we're finishing the book of Acts. And uh, I love the book of Acts. It's my favorite book of the Bible, so I'm kind of sad that we're finishing it. In two weeks, we're going to start the book of Romans. Uh, Well, as we finish, it's important to know the theme of Acts. The theme of Acts can be broken up into three parts. And it's summarized in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. In chapter 1, verse 8, the resurrected Jesus, he's already died, he's already resurrected from the grave, is speaking to his people, 120 of his followers, which are called disciples. And he says to them, I want you to go out with this message about me and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, this message about Jesus was very simple. It's about who he was. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus took on flesh to become human because he knew that we would never have the righteousness of our own to get to God. He came to us because we would never be able to get to him. Amen? Amen. Then he lived a perfect life on our behalf. Uh, In order to have relationship with God, you have to be righteous. But none of us 
if we're honest with ourselves, are righteous. So he lived a perfect life on our behalf so that we could be righteous. And then he died on the cross for our sins, bearing the penalty of our sin. And then he went into the grave and he resurrected so that we could have life with God forever. And that's good news. Hallelujah. We can have life with God. You can know God. And Jesus said, I want you to take this message to three places. He said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That sounds kind of far, doesn't it? Jerusalem, Samaria, and the earth. So in chapter 2 of Acts, we see the gospel going to Jerusalem. The message of Jesus goes to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, we see it goes to Samaria, which was a neighboring country, uh, which were half Jewish people. They were, they were uh, half Jewish. And then beyond that, in Acts chapter 10, it starts to go to people who are non-Jewish, to the ends of the earth. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, it just continues to advance further and further and further until it finally gets to Rome here in Acts chapter 28. And any ancient reader would have understood, if you can get the message of Jesus to Rome, you can get it to the ends of the earth. And so what we see here in these last two chapters is Jesus fulfilling his promise. I'm gonna bring people from the ends of the earth to myself. Now, the last section of the book of Acts follows a guy named Paul. And Paul is a great guy. He's a pastor and a church planter. And his goal is to make Jesus famous to anybody who would listen. And what we see in Paul in these last couple chapters is that Paul is resolved to the end. Like he's, he ain't gonna quit. Nothing's gonna stop Paul from proclaiming Jesus. He's resolved to the end. And as I was reading those last two chapters, it made me think of a few things. One of my favorite things as a pastor is I get to witness people getting baptized. Amen? Baptism is, uh, if you're new to the church, it's a, it's a Christian uh, ritual where somebody proclaims their faith in Jesus. It's, an, it's the entry point of faith. And what they're saying is that as Jesus was lowered into uh, the grave for my sins, I have died with him. And as he was resurrected, I can now be cleansed of my sin and have life with God. And I love that. I love hearing the stories. I love hearing how Jesus has changed them. But over time, I've been a pastor for a handful of years now. And one of the saddest things I experience is many of the people that we've baptized have walked away, have abandoned ship on faith in Jesus. And reading these last two chapters, it's caused me to ask the question, what's the difference between the people who are resolved to the end and the people who abandon ship? What's the difference? I think the difference lies in where our hearts are anchored. Where our hearts are anchored. If your heart is anchored in the comforts of life, in personal gain, and using Jesus to reach those things, eventually you will drift. You will abandon your faith. But if your heart is anchored in the reality that God is at work to the end, whether you're in drought or storm, he's always present, he will never leave you nor forsake you, then you will stay resolved to the end. And I think that that's what these two chapters are about. We are resolved to the end because God is at work to the end. Amen? And so let's look at this. It breaks down into three scenes. The terrifying storm, the, the misfortunate shipwreck, and the anticlimactic arrival in Rome. So let's look at first one, the terrifying storm. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, describes Paul's journey, which he starts heading to Rome. Now the reason why this is important is because God has promised Paul several times that he is going to get to Rome, and he's going to testify about Jesus in Rome. God has said that this is going to happen. 
But mean, in the meanwhile, Paul's been in prison. And he's in, been in prison not because he did anything wrong, but because in Jerusalem he started saying that Jesus was God and that he's resurrected from the dead and that Jesus is the true king and Christ that the Jews have been looking forward to. The Jews in Jerusalem didn't like this, so they caused a riot to happen. And because Rome wanted peace in Jerusalem, they arrested Paul and took him to another city where he's been in prison for two years. He's been in prison for two years. And Paul's been on trial three different times. And finally, in his last trial, Paul's like, you know what? I appeal to Caesar. God says, I'm going to get to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. So the judge says, fine, you can go to Caesar. And now they've granted him to be able to get on a ship. He's put in the charge of a centurion, which is a Roman soldier who oversees 100 men. His name is Julius. And they start taking a ship on a voyage towards uh, Rome. So this is the path that they take. They start here in Caesarea and they come around the island of Cyprus and they start making their way up. They get to Snidus and they change ships to a big ship that can carry over 270 passengers and then they start to head around the island of Crete. But it's tough traveling because the weather is really bad. So they land in the city of Fair Havens down here at the bottom and then they, and this is where we pick up in verse 9. It says this, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, that's the Feast of, of, of Atonement, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend winter there. So here's what's going on. They're right here in Fair Havens. Now, it's the fall time. And in the Mediterranean, you do not sail from fall all the way to spring because it's too rough. And Paul is an experienced traveler. We learn in another book that he's already been shipwrecked two times. And so he says, hey, you guys, I don't want to be shipwrecked again. <laughs> like, let's just winter here. I know it's not the best place. Let's winter here. But the captain of the ship said, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. And the centurion said, we're going to listen to the captain. And the sailors took a vote. And the majority of them said, let us try to make it up to a little harbor right here on the corner of Crete. Uh, called Phoenix, and there we'll spend the winter. So that's what's going on. They did not listen to the advice of Paul, who happened to be a prophet of God, okay? So, verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of the small island called Kata. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat, and after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and listen to this, verse 19. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is what I call a bad day. So they, are, they decide to make it around the island. And guess what happens? As Paul said, a dangerous storm comes and they get taken out into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. 
and they're storm-tossed, it said. And it says for several days they can't see the stars nor the sun, which is really bad when compasses have not yet been invented. So they're lost. They're just being blown back and forth. I mean, that's a big storm if for several days you can't even see the sun. And so they're just out there and the sailors are doing everything they can. They're trying to weigh anchor. They're trying to, they're doing all the, they're pulling out all the tricks. And then they start, they get to the end and they say, you know what? We're going to sink. Let's start throwing over the, the cargo. They, so they start throwing over the cargo. And I like the writer of this section named Luke. He says, they even threw out the tackle, which was a really bad idea. And so they get to this place where they're just storm tossed. And what you need to see is in verse 20, it says, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Now pause there for a moment. Isn't it interesting that God sometimes guides us into a place where all hope of being saved saved seems to be abandoned? Like a lot of times he doesn't show up until we get to that place. One of my favorite quotes in the world is by a guy named Paul Zoll and he says, God's office is at the end of our rope. But we gotta get to the end of the rope sometimes. And so that's what happens, verse 21. It says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me (laughs) and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. Men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So they're storm-tossed. It's been several days. And Paul gets up and says, hey, don't worry about it, guys. First of all, you should have listened to me. He kind of sounds like an arrogant jerk, doesn't he? It's like, that's a messed up thing to say. Now, I don't, maybe he was. I don't know what he was doing there. But maybe he was also just trying to legitimize his message. Saying, hey, I told you this would happen, so listen up. I got a good word. And he says, an angel appeared to me and the angel said to me that I must stand before Caesar and testify about Jesus. And so God has granted not only my life, but everybody who sails on the ship. And so Paul really has a message of good news. It's a sort of gospel. He says, God is going to save us, but we're going to lose the ship. We're going to be shipwrecked. And Paul says this, I have faith that it will be exactly as God has said. Now, I want you to notice the difference. The sailors were putting trust in the faith of their hands. They were pulling out all the tricks. Paul was putting trust in the faith of God's promises. And there's a difference that begins, we begin to see how they act here. In verse 27, it says, when the 14th night had come, by the way, that's a long time to be, I mean, I get car sick just driving for like a long drive. 14 nights of just being on the sea, just back and forth. 14 night. It says, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took another sounding and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship and the boat, or or cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So here's what's going on. They're being storm tossed. 14 days are going by and all of a sudden they get close to an island. 
and they start to sense we're close to an island. So sailors put out a sounding and initially they find out they're 120 feet away from the island. And then a little bit of time goes by and they put out another sounding. They're 90 feet. That's pretty close. So the sailors are like, hey, this is our chance to escape. Screw the passengers of the ship. Let's get out of here. So they say, we're going to go weigh anchor. That's what they tell everybody else. And they go up in the, under the pretense of letting down the anchors and they start to get on the lifeboats to escape. And Paul says to the centurion, hey, these guys, if they leave, we all die. So the Roman soldiers cut all the ropes to the lifeboats. <laughs> and so that's what happens. So, but what, once again, I want you to see, the sailors were trying to take matters into their own hands. Paul had already given them a gospel, you will live. But they didn't trust it, so they were trying to take matters into their own hands. Into their own hands. So in then verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So they're 14 days without food. That's a long time. That kind of gives you a picture of the stress that was on the boat, right? You ever been so stressed you can't eat? That's what was going on for two weeks. These people were hangry people also. <laughs> two weeks. But Paul, he's like, hey, God is saving us. So uh, he's just like snacking on a piece of bread, you know. Everybody else is freaking out. Paul is pigging out on bread. <laughs> why? Here's the reason why. The sailors' anchors weren't working. Paul's anchor was. Paul's anchor was in the work of God. Paul's anchor was in the, the promises of God in the midst of the storm. And so, therefore, Paul could have peace in the middle of the storm while everybody was freaking out. So Paul's just like kind of holding onto a rope, just eating bread, saying, hey, this bread's good. You guys should eat. God's going to save us all. And he urges them all to eat, and they all take some food and are strengthened and encouraged by the food. And then in verse 39, it says this. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship so that, it was, so that it was all who were brought safely to the land. So here's what's going on. So daybreak comes. They see a sandy beach. They're like, that looks like a good place to land a ship. Let's go for it. They just let up all the anchors and they just start beelining for that. And then they hit a reef. <laughs> and it's kind of God saying, there's no way that you are going to save yourself. If this is going to happen, it's going to be my doing. So they hit a reef. The bow of the boat gets stuck. The boat starts breaking because of the surf. And then everybody's going to need to jump overboard. The soldiers of the ship are saying, 
let's kill all the prisoners because they're afraid they're going to lose a prisoner. And if a Roman soldier lost a prisoner, he would be executed and put to shame publicly. So they didn't want that to happen. But because Paul and because God made a promise to Paul, the centurion who was guarding Paul said, no, let's save all the prisoners. And he ordered everybody to swim to shore or to get on a plank and to do the Titanic thing and get to the shore so that everybody could be safe. And they all were. And God fulfilled his promise. He saved them in the middle of the storm. So what does this mean for us? First thing it means for us is this. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're going to have an easy life. Like, think about Paul. Before Paul became a Christian, he was a religious elite. He was a very popular man. He had a lot of money and a lot of affluence and a lot of popularity. But then he became a Christian. Everybody wanted to kill him. He was put in prison. He'd just been in prison for two years. And finally, he gets his big break to finally go complete the mission that God has for him. And he's put out to storm for 14 days. Just because you're a Christian, just because you're being faithful to God, doesn't mean that everything is going to fall in place in, in your life. That's the first thing it means. Okay? Second thing that this has for us is it shows us that God, there's going to be nothing that stops God from accomplishing his plan. God's plan was for Paul to get to Rome. And the reason that they ended up in the storm was not Paul's fault. It was the stupidity of the sailors. And God is not going to allow the stupidity of any humans to stop his plan. So they ended up in the storm because they were being dumb. But God said, you know what? I'm still going to guide my people because I still got to get my messenger to Rome. Lastly, God's not going to let a little storm stop his people from working. A little storm. God is greater than all storms. And so we see that God is at work and there will be nothing that stops him from accomplishing his plan. And Paul understood this. This is why Paul was able to be eating bread in the middle of a storm when nobody else was eating. Paul was at peace. They were freaking out. Paul's anchor was working. There wasn't. And what this shows for us is that we need to be rooting ourselves in the promises of God. Because if you don't root yourself in the promises of God, you won't be able to weather the storms of your life. I love what a great preacher named Charles Spurgeon says. He says, a Bible that's falling apart is usually belongs to someone who isn't. <laughs> a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. Because a Bible that's falling apart belongs to an owner who's clinging to the promises of God, to the words of God. And the question is, is are you? I think what this story exposes in us is it, is it exposes our natural tendency to be like the sailors, doesn't it? That when the storms of life hit, to try to take matters into our own hands which is why we're running around so anxious and frantic all the time. And you might be saying, I don't do that, but my question to you is, why are you so stressed all the time then? Now, it doesn't mean, it's, this is not like Jesus take the wheel theology. <laughs> like you just sit on your butt and do nothing. That's not what this is saying. No, you use your mind, you use your gifts, you work hard, but your hope relies in the promises of God, not you. Amen. So that is the difference here. Paul was rooted in him. Where are you? Do you, are you rooted in God enough and his present work in your life to be able to weather storms? And if you're not a Christian, where does your hope lie? The hope that we're offering you in Christ is that you can have an anchor 
in the one who's greater than all storms. So that's, that's the terrifying storm. Now let's look at the unfortunate shipwreck. What I want you to see in this is that God guides the, even the misfortune of our lives so that he might spread his goodness. Verse 1 of chapter 28 says, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging on from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Our boy Paul cannot get a break, can he? (laughs) They make it, they're safe on land, and you know, they're cold. It's like the middle of fall. They haven't eaten for a long time. The, the native people of Malta build a fire. They're very hospitable. Paul goes in his kindness and, and he gets some wood to come put it on the fire. And then all of a sudden, a viper, a poisonous viper jumps out and bites his arm. And the people are like, well, surely this guy's a murderer because uh, justice is getting him. He would have escaped, but justice has not allowed it. And so, Paul cannot get a break. And then we get here in verse uh, five. It says this. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or to suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. (laughs) So Paul has this poisonous snake attached to his arm, a snake that should kill him. They're all waiting for him to just keel over and die and what does Paul do? He just shakes it off, shakes, shakes it off, you know, right into the fire. <laughs> he just shakes that snake right in the fire, and then uh, he doesn't die. And they change their thinking about him real quick. He goes from murderer to a god. And what this just shows is they were acknowledging that there was a divine power and a divine guidance over Paul's life, a, a guidance over the forces of death. And because of that, look at what happens in verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had disease also came and were cured. And they honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul is bit by the snake. They see as this power that seems to be over death. So they say, hey, the chief's dad is sick. Maybe you can come and heal him. And so Paul goes and prays for this man in the name of Jesus. And this man is healed. They see that there's something going on here. So they bring all the sick people of the island to Paul. And he prays for them. And all their diseases are healed. How crazy is that? But guess what? Listen to this. That would have never happened had there not been a shipwreck. That would have never happened had Paul not been bitten by a poisonous snake. That would have never happened had there not been a storm. That would have never happened had had not Paul been put in prison. You see, God was guiding the misfortune of all of these events because he wanted to heal people on Malta. 
And I think we can make a safe assumption that not only was Paul doing demonstrations of power in healings, he was also preaching the gospel to them. Because every time we see healings happening in the book of Acts, we also see the gospel being preached. And so what I want you to see with this is this. Um, When it says that the native people in the original language, it calls them barbarians. (laughs) God cared for these barbarians just as much as he cared for the people in Rome. God wanted the gospel to get to the biggest city in the world, the most important city in the world, but he also wanted to get to forgotten Malta. He cared about all of these people and therefore he guided the misfortune of all these people that these people on Malta might be healed and perhaps some of them become Christians. This is the work of our God. Um, You see, we need to hear this message in America. And you need to hear this. Because in America, we are very consumed with the VIPs. The big stars. We're very concerned about being where the action is. In fact, if you're in high school right now, many of the high schoolers I talk to, their thing is, as soon as I graduate high school, I'm out of here. Because I want to get to a big city. I want to be where it's really cool. I want to be in an influential place. But if your mind is only set on being around the cool places, you're going to miss God at work all around you. And what we see here is a God who loves the people in Rome and a God who loves the barbarians on Malta. (laughs) He loves all these people. And it should be great encouragement to us because sometimes you feel like the forgotten barbarian on Malta. Sometimes you feel like nobody cares about you. But what you need to know is God does care about you. And it's also important for you to remember because what we need to see with Paul is Paul was not navel-gazing at this moment when he had every opportunity to, right? He's not like, man, I'm just trying to do God's work. And then he puts me in prison. And then I get thrown out to storm. I can't even eat for a couple weeks. And then we shipwreck. Then a freaking viper bites me on the arm. Like, he's not doing that. Like, Every moment of Paul, he considers a moment to display his faith in God and to show God's goodness to the people around him, even if he's still in chains. And I would venture to say that the reason that we don't have that attitude in misfortune is because we don't believe that God is at work when he seems like he's not. But if we are rooted in this reality that God is at work to the end, we will be resolved to the end to show his goodness to all different types of people. And so that's what happens on Malta. And lastly, they start to make their voyage to Rome which is the last section. But I want you to see that it's a very anticlimactic ending to the book of Acts. Arguably, the book of Acts is the most exciting book in the Bible until you get to chapter 28. And it's very like, what the heck, you know? And so Paul continues their journey in verses 11 through 14. It says that they start to make their way up to Rome. They get another ship. They start to make their way up. Verse 14, it says, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far from Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So what's going on is Paul makes his way to Rome. And when he finally makes his way to Rome, who's there? Brothers. Brothers, meaning other Christians. Brothers and sisters. Now the reason why that's so important is because When you're reading the book of Acts just as a reader, if you were to just pick it up and read, you're like, oh, God's got to get the gospel to Rome through Paul. God's got to get the gospel to Rome through Paul. God's got to get the gospel to Rome through Paul. And then he gets to Rome and the gospel's already there. (laughs) The brothers were already ahead of him. 
Now, Paul knew this, of course, because a few years earlier, he had already wrote a book to the Romans, which we're going to go through in a couple weeks. He had already wrote a book to the Romans. Paul knew that the gospel had already spread to Rome through anonymous, ordinary Christians, and he was just going there to support. But that's a beautiful thing for us. It's very almost anticlimactic, though, isn't it? And so what happens when Paul gets to Rome is Paul continues with his custom. His strategy was to go into a city and appeal to the Jews because the Jews had the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul's point was he wanted to show them how everything in the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. And so he would, he would reason with them and talk to them about that. The other reason that Paul needed to talk to the Jews when he got to Rome is because his case legally was against the Jews. And he wanted to gather the Jewish leaders and tell them, hey, it's nothing personal. I just want you to know about Jesus. And God wanted me to get to Rome, so I appealed to Caesar. That's why I'm here. And so that's what happens in the next verses. And then uh, they're interested in what Paul has to say. And so they go and get their friends and they come back. And so that's where we pick up in verse 23. It says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in a great numbers. From the morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That's a long sermon, from morning to even, evening. Okay, don't complain about long sermons here. Paul was preaching all day. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. You guys need to hear this statement. Listen to this. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and I would turn and I would heal them. And so what Paul is doing is he's appealing to the Jews and he's showing them from the Bible how that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And it says that some believed, but many didn't. And Paul got frustrated with the people who didn't and said, you know what? What Isaiah prophesied was about you. You're seeing with your eyes, but you're not truly seeing. You're hearing with your ears, but you're not truly understanding what God has done. And the reason is, is because you have a dull heart. You have a heart that doesn't want a savior because you would want to rely on your own works. And so Paul just straight up calls them out and at that point, they all leave. That's kind of anticlimactic. I would expect Paul gets to Rome and a bunch of people become Christians. But most disbelieve. And then it says in verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul says, fine, you Jews who have the Old Testament scriptures, you don't want to hear it? I'm going to the non-Jews. They'll want to hear it because many people need a savior. And he said, and this is how the book ends, verse 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so what we see here is Paul remains there two whole years. This is a very anticlimactic way to end the most exciting book in the Bible. Paul's in Rome. The mission is complete. I would expect like mass repentance, but no. A few people believe. Most don't. And isn't it funny that God doesn't take Paul off of house arrest? He's still in chains. 
Like, here's what you need to know. Paul is like the Tom Brady of church planting. He's like the LeBron James. He's like, you know, the Taylor Swift is to pop music. Paul is to the church. Like, Paul is the top dog, and God has no problem benching Paul. You know why? Because the advance of the gospel involves us, but it doesn't depend on any one of us. Paul is benched, and the only thing he can do is preach the gospel from his home. And people have to come to him. And there's no telling how many people even believed because it's on the power of God. I mean, there's no parade when he gets there. There's no citywide revival. revival. Paul doesn't even get to stand before Caesar. And we, I would expect like, man, Nero becomes a Christian and changes his ways. No, that doesn't happen. All we know is that from church history, eventually Paul got released. He probably went to Spain and preached in Spain, but then he ended up back in Rome, back in prison and was later beheaded. You see, this is a very different idea of success than what we are used to in America, isn't it? We view success as winning the championship. And then we expect a parade after we win. We view success as accomplishing our personal freedom. And we'll fight anybody if they try to mess with our freedom. We view success as making a lot of money. We view success as achieving our own comfort and tranquility and moving into suburbia so we don't have to deal with the mess of people's lives. We view success as becoming popular and powerful. But none of this happens with Paul in Rome. Because it's a picture of God's upside down kingdom on earth. Until Jesus returns, the kingdom of heaven will manifest itself on earth in an upside down way. Listen to this. It advances and spreads in the shadow of humility, not the spotlight of popularity. The kingdom of heaven has power that does not depend on the acceptance of people, but rather on the acceptance of God. The kingdom of heaven isn't displayed through spiritual all-stars, but through average Joe, everyday, ordinary, anonymous Christians. It looks more like Paul, who at this point is an old man on house arrest, than it does a rich, popular politician in the middle of the courts. In fact, it looks like a man on the cross who laid down his glory, got off his throne, and got onto a piece of wood that he created. It looks far more like a crown of thorns than it does a crown of gold. And the kingdom of heaven here on earth right now looks like the king of heaven being scorned willfully by the people he created so he could save their souls. Until Jesus returns, this kingdom is gonna spread through humble sacrifice, not dominant glory. In fact, it's the lack of glory that makes it glorious because it's completely out of this world. And what it shows for us and what it should encourage in us is that when your life feels boring, Jesus is just as much at work than it when it feels like spiritual fireworks are going off. Because Jesus loves to work in the ordinary. And I love how Luke just ends this abruptly. I think the reason he ends it so abruptly is because he's saying to us, I can't finish this story of the church because it's still being written. Jesus is still at work in the church through very ordinary ways. And I think if Luke was alive today and he saw what was happening at Living Stones, there would be a chapter in there about Living Stones and Reno and Sparks and Carson and Elko and hopefully next year, South Reno. 
And we would get to be a part of it. But there would be nobody who would be like the all-star that would give any of us credit because Jesus is the one who gets all the credit. And then Luke would probably write about how the contributions that we're making are helping to support other churches all over the world. In fact, if you're new at our church, you should know that we give 10% of what we bring in as a church to other church planting efforts around the world through Acts 29. Which, by the way, it's called Acts 29 because it's, it's not a cult. Many people are like, are you a cult? There's no Acts 29 in the Bible. It's Acts 29 because it's a way of saying the work is still continuing. It hasn't stopped and it won't stop until Jesus returns. And we give 10% of our money to Acts 29. And in fact, a few, like a month ago, I sat down with somebody that we support. His name is Arjuna in India. He oversees 500 churches. And he said to me, Kyle, with the money that your church is giving, we're supporting several church planters, some of whom have lived in villages that have existed for 3,000 years and they're the first Christian in their village. And because of the money that we give as living stones, because it only costs $75 to support a rural church planter, so we support a whole mess of them, the money that we give as living stones is, is accomplishing the first Christian witness in villages across the world for 3,000 years. Because of you. And what does it take from you? Nothing but ordinariness. You go to your job. You work hard. We contribute together and we bless those in the world. And the same thing. What does it take for us to plant churches and see God open up people's eyes? It takes nothing but ordinariness. We love people. We sacrifice. We serve. And we speak about our good Lord Jesus and he changes their hearts. God is at work. And when we really believe that God is at work to the end, we will be resolved to the end and we won't abandon ship. So that's our call. And it's a good call. Because it's a promise that God will always be with us. Amen, church? Amen. God, we're so thankful for you. We're thankful that you would use us in the boringness of our lives to do your great and glorious work that changes souls for eternity. Help us to be mindful of you in the storms. And when we're not, even show up in ways that would recapture our attention. And help us to cling to you, for we know that we cannot do it in our own strength. We need your help. In Jesus' name we pray.